As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, along with our colleague, Nathan Connolly. And each week, we explore a topic in American history. For many Americans, nothing brings back wistful childhood memories quite like Sesame Street. Whether it was practicing your ABCs with Big Bird, learning the value of friendship from Bert and Ernie, or exploring your emotions with Elmo, the show has a special place in hearts all across the country. Since it first aired in 1969, Sesame Street has raked in countless awards and has become one of the longest-running children's television shows in history. But in 1966, Sesame Street was nothing more than an idea. Several of the people at the party were interested in or actually working in television. That's Lloyd Morissette, the co-founder of Sesame Street. He says the origins of the show can be traced back to a dinner party in New York City hosted by Joan Cooney, a television producer. And so I said at one point in the conversation, Joan, do you think television could be used to teach young children? And her answer was, I don't know, but I'd like to talk about it. And so, with that question, began the development of what would become Sesame Street. But to understand why Lloyd would ask such a question, we have to rewind a bit. Before Sesame Street, he was a psychologist at the Carnegie Corporation, an organization that supports academic policy and childhood development. At the time, there was lots of talk about the education gap between rich and poor children. That's where Lloyd's work as a psychologist comes in. We financed, I think, three to five, I'm not sure of the number anymore, experiments to see if something could be done about it, where children were given special treatment, special curriculum, and to see whether or not when they went into school they could do better. All of those programs worked. 
But Lloyd says those experiments, while successful, only reached a few thousand children. And his solution to that problem? Television. But not everybody agreed with him. The general feeling in the academic world at the time was that television was the boob tube. Right. So there wasn't any uniform feeling that it was really possible for television to be of beneficial educational applications. The audience we were particularly trying to reach was a disadvantaged audience that was otherwise likely to fail in the early grades. I see. Typically speaking, there were about four and a half million children entering school each year. Mm -hmm. About a third of those would enter at a disadvantage in reading, for example, of three months. By the end of first grade, they would be further behind. By third grade, they'd be a year behind, and they never made it up. Wow. Now, most of those children lived in urban areas. So in choosing a setting for the program, we chose an urban area, and of course we were in New York, that had a very large population of the children we're talking about, and decided that it should be in New York, and it should be in the very beginning representative of the multicultural nature of New York. Over time, did it turn out that uh, kids who were not from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, were just as attracted to the show, kids who grew up in the countryside and never really seen a city street? Did you find that that strategy that you had to reach uh, your, your target audience also reached other kids? Well, the, the viewing conditions were very different then than they are now. In the time we went on the air in 1969, a typical family would have one television set and the family would watch the television together because there was only one program to be watched. So we had to design a program that would appeal fairly broadly to both adults and children. And so the, the writers concentrated on having content that adults would find humorous and funny and keep them involved so the children would indeed watch. Now what happened in answer to your question, was yes, we did find that the entertainment values in the show attracted children who did not need as much in the educational realm as the children we were directing the curriculum at. And as the audience grew, I think it, it meant that we really had to continue to think of the curriculum that was going to most benefit the children most in need. Right. But at the same time, keep the show entertaining enough so that it would have a large audience and attract adults as well as children. So uh, there was television uh, that young people learned something from before Sesame Street. And I was fascinated by Captain Kangaroo. And the main thing, I love the show, so I, I shouldn't speak uh, poorly of it, but the main thing I remember is I really, really wanted a Schwinn bicycle. Uh, <laughs> you know, he had this, this most, you know, this great sense of uh, solidarity with him, and then he would come on there and talk about just how excellent a Schwinn was. <laughs> and I can remember just, you know, oh, so solid and excellent. Um, so how would you differentiate uh, yourselves in the early days from shows like Captain Kangaroo? Over the first year of the program, the main hurdle that we had to overcome 
was to prove that television could indeed be used to teach young children. And the study that was done after the first year showed that the more children watched, the more they learned. And that indeed they did learn some of the things we were trying to teach. The things we were trying to teach were chosen not only because they were things that were useful to children, mm -hmm. but they were also things that could be measured. Did they know their letters? Did they know their numbers? So on. At the beginning, the, the very explicit purpose of Sesame Street was to give kids who otherwise were starting in sort of a, a deficit when they started school a, a head start. Do you feel that Sesame Street has helped narrow the gap between more and less fortunate kids? In some ways, yes, but in, in, in accomplishing the original goal, no. The demographics of that group have changed considerably over the years. That is, the third of the kids that enter school at some deficit have changed. But what I think now, I'm speaking personally, yes. is that what we saw as an educational problem was secondarily an educational problem. Really, it was an income inequality problem. Right. And that we have not overcome. I'd, I'd say one other thing here, Ed. Where, where I live now in California, I see many Spanish background children. Yeah. And several have told me that they learned English from Sesame Street. Oh, that's... Now, that was one of our goals, but children are, that are motivated can find something to learn, and Sesame Street offers a lot of possibilities. So today on the show, in celebration of Sesame Street's 50th anniversary, we're walking down memory lane and bringing you a history of America's most beloved children's show. We'll learn how the show has been successfully exported all over the world. We'll find out how a Sesame Street writer advocated for disability representation throughout her 45 years on the show. And you'll hear from a special furry friend. Sesame Street might be one of the most famous streets in the United States. But it turns out there were, and in some cases still are, international versions of Sesame Street all across the world. I'm talking about Russian versions of Sesame Street, German versions of Sesame Street, Sesame Street in Northern Ireland, Canada, South Africa, and the Middle East. But these versions aren't the same thing you'd see in the United States. In all cases, they're tailor-made to reflect the local concerns and issues of children. For 20 years, Charlotte Cole helped develop international programming for Sesame Workshop. I got in touch with her recently to find out what it was like developing Muppet characters that connected with kids all over the world. But I started our conversation by asking Charlotte to explain the international model of Sesame Street and how it developed in the days before she joined the project in 1994. What evolved, you know, in the 70s, kind of very early on, was this co-production model where initially about 50% of the content was from Sesame Street in the United States, and then another 50% was produced locally. So in the German show, which has been on, you know, for years and years and years, you know, you'd see Bert and Ernie, and it would those segments were dubbed into German. But, you know, kids living in Germany 
really thought of Bert and Ernie as German. Right. So much so that, <laughs> you know, there were even um, postage stamps in, in some of these countries wow. that were, yeah. But one, the, the difference when I came was that there were some opportunities to really look at how you could use Sesame Street to promote international development aims. And, and I'm assuming then that that would be a combination of American producers and, and educators working with producers and educators in whatever Russia or South Africa or and, and coming up with what that sort of message ought to be? Or is that really mostly coming from the country where the show is going to be? It was a collaboration that was just the most and some of the most exciting elements about working on these programs was this you know, opportunity to be working with these amazing minds mm. all over the the world. And the Sesame Workshop model, which was used, you know, and is still used today in the United States, was innovative in that it brought together researchers, educators to work over the course of an entire project mm. with the producers. Then in the international realm, you kind of layer in that whole element of bringing in educators from whatever region you're working in, whatever country, and they're working with researchers there and the production team, and then collaborating with experts at Sesame. And so it became this kind of uber <laughs> collaboration. Well, and let's talk about an example of that, just so people can get a sense of that. Maybe talk about working on the uh, Israeli and Palestinian version. So how did that work? What what kind of messages were you developing together? And then what what did the outcome look like? So with that production, we began first by having meetings that were separate with Israelis and Palestinians. And then there's also a, a group of Palestinian Israeli citizens who were, you know, Arab citizens of Israel. And kind of meeting with uh, experts from those three groups and then having kind of a separate time to really have them articulate what did they want the program to bring their children and what did they want their kids to learn. And then we had an opportunity to bring people together in a seminar that, uh, you know, that was fascinating. I mean, there were, there were people that joined who had never been in the room with somebody from the other group. And they really talked about what should kids know and mm. what should should they learn. And what's amazing, I think, in terms of Sesame Street and kind of why we were able to work in these different realms was, you know, for all of the discourse that might be negative across group divides, everybody wants a brighter future for their children. Right. And so children become a huge unifier. You could get people to talk about their kids and talk about what they wanted for their kids and, you know, even kind of be a much more playful engagement just because hmm. everybody was focused on kids. That particular project, you know, it, it had its kind of ups and downs kind of in accordance with what was happening politically, um, and it morphed into different things. Um, but the essential core was to... One, you know, it had sort of a basic curriculum that was very much like the curriculum here in the United States of literacy, numeracy, kind of basic social skills. But it was also to help introduce Palestinian children to Israelis and Israelis' children to Palestinians. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I, I understand that that particular show, as you put it, kind of morphed over the years explicitly because of the, the politics of the situation, particularly having to do with the idea of one street. Is that true? Well, there had been a program in Israel for a long time that was quite beloved, um, mm. that was a Sesame Street program. And so, and that was produced by Israeli educational television. Um, and so this was an extension of that in, in many ways at the very beginning. But the innovation was that there was a Israeli street and there was a Palestinian street. And mm. really what, what evolved was basically two different shows um, and then there was some crossover between the characters where Israeli characters would come to the Palestinian program and vice versa. But there there were distinct differences between the end products for a, lo a lot of reasons. I mean, well, one, the Palestinian program was in Arabic and the, the Israeli was in Hebrew. And then it did have some Arabic elements to it. So is there um, a, a character or a segment or something that really stands out to you from the Israeli-Palestinian version of Sesame Street that really kind of captures what that was all about? Well, let's see. In terms of characters, you know, each of the the Israelis had their cast and the Palestinians had their cast. And, they had, um, and then they had uh, other characters that would... Um, talk to each other like there's a there's a beautiful exchange between these two little muppet kind of muppets that that are um just these kind of happy go lucky muppets that are exchanging and at one point they're you know they're realizing one that one speaks hebrew and the other speaks arabic and they're trying to kind of figure out how they're going to communicate and in the end they realize that they share a love of falafel <laughs> And so they just start to, to, you know, echo back to each other, falafel, 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 <laughs> and they, you know, and so the falafel becomes uh, the, the their shared word and their kind of shared love. It's this idea of finding your common humanity. Let me shift from um, the Israeli-Palestinian version that we've been talking about to another one of these international Sesame Street editions that had educational and then some kind of um, deeper message to it. And that's um, South Africa. And I understand that you helped develop a character named Cammy for the South yes. African version. Uh, this was really wonderful. So early on, Sesame uh, had, had visited South Africa, they were actually invited to, uh, it was a little bit before I arrived, they were invited to come and kind of talk to people and see if it would be possible to do a Sesame co-production there. And th the company was very interested, uh, but had decided they wanted to wait until, uh, you know, after apartheid. And so uh, once apartheid ended, they decided to do a program that would support South Africa's new curriculum. And this Sesame piece was going to support that. But after the program had been on the on for a year, uh, the program's called Takalani Sesame, there was, and this was true from the very beginning, people, the educators in South Africa really felt that 
any kind of educational program in South Africa needs to address HIV and AIDS. At the time, there was a wonderful minister of education. His name was Kader Asmal. He had seen Sesame Street, and he was very familiar with it. He knew kind of its potential. He also was deeply um, concerned about the situation of HIV and AIDS in South Africa. And I think he felt it was a responsibility of the minister, the Ministry of Education to be educating the population about the issues of HIV and AIDS. And he also believed in starting early. This was a, a country where one in nine South Africans, South Africans was affected by, infected by the disease. And so it was impacting them uh, on a huge level. And he felt very strongly that even young kids can learn about this. And so it was really his kind of drive um, that set us up. We began by just looking at, you know, what should young kids know? And we did formative testing to find out what do kids already know? And what we found out was the kids, you know, they associated HIV and AIDS with a kind of negative valence, and they, they knew it was something bad, but they didn't know what it was. They didn't know it was a disease. And really what kind of emerged was there was such a huge culture of silence around HIV and AIDS. And what people felt was that we need to give kids a lexicon for talking about HIV and AIDS, kids and their parents. The result of that was the development of this character, Cammie, whose name um, means hope. Every aspect of her was deliberate. First of all, she's a more humanoid-looking Muppet. Mm. And the reason for that was that, you know, it's human disease. You know, they didn't want there to be kind of confusion with a more animal-like character. She's female because of the disproportionate number of women uh, who are uh, infected. All the different elements of her personality and kind of who she was were were debated by these educators and the working with the creative staff. She became this vehicle for helping kids learn about HIV and AIDS, and it, and it really became a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And what's interesting is the feedback that that we got from parents, from kids. It was, it really worked. It was a way for people to talk about it. You know, she became a. a champion for children, for UNICEF. She kind of got an official, I don't know, wasn't exactly ambassador title, because <laughs> I don't think you can be an ambassador if you're a Muppet, but she was as close as you can be. Mr. President, I have a very important question for you. What does a former Mr. President do? Well, Cammie, one of the things I do is talk to people about things that are important to them, mm -hmm. about things that will make a difference in their lives. Oh, yes. Well, I do that also. I like to talk to people about my school and my friends and my favorite things. Oh, oh, and I also talk to them about HIV and AIDS. Me too, Cammie. Now, actually talking about whether a puppet can be an ambassador or not, I, I understand that you've used the term Muppet diplomacy before in talking about this work. So, so what actually do you mean by that? To me, Muppets are playful they are um, endearing to, to people. And, and I've seen 
people be in meetings and we'll have little plush toys sitting on the table. And, you know, when things, the discussions get difficult, um, people will start fiddling around with these plush toys and a certain amount melts, you know. And I, I think that Muppet diplomacy is really about getting at that common humanity that we share. And the Muppets just do that. Charlotte Cole is the executive director and co-founder of Blue Butterfly Collaborative, which supports locally made educational programming in low-income countries. For 20 years, she was senior vice president of global education at Sesame Workshop. And thanks to UNICEF for the audio you just heard of Cami with, if you couldn't tell, former president Bill Clinton. It's the time of year when everyone is traveling or running around getting thoughtful gifts for the people they care about. Think about giving yourself the gift of Audible membership. Now's the best time to do it with a special offer of 53% off your first three months. Access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. I have an Audible subscription, and I listen to, I kid you not, Moby Dick, all the way through. And it was fascinating. I'd really recommend that. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere with the Audible app. It's great while commuting, at the gym, or during your holiday travels. With Audible, you'll also enjoy audiobook exchanges and your own audiobook library you keep forever, even if you cancel. Give yourself the gift of listening. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash backstory or text backstory to 500-500. That's audible.com slash backstory or text backstory to 500-500. Okay, guys, I have a confession. Yeah, Joanne, let's hear it. I've always had this wish to one day meet a Muppet. You know, who hasn't had that wish? Did your wish come true? <laughs> it did. I am very happy to report that it did. Is that you, Joanne? Hola! <laughs> <laughs> it is I'm me. I'm a fairy monster. <laughs> meet Rosita. Well, actually, her full name is... Rosita, la monstruo de las cuevas. She's an adorable turquoise monster who's been a recurring character on Sesame Street for nearly 30 years. Rosita stands out among her furry friends because she's bilingual. And you can often find her teaching her fellow Muppets words or phrases in Spanish. She loves to share her culture with her friends. She's actually teaching Elmo to say a few words. She loves music. She plays the guitar. She's just happy to, to be part of the gang. It's easy to imagine beloved characters like Big Bird, Elmo, and Rosita as actual living and autonomous creatures. But the reality is that behind every character is a talented Muppeteer bringing them to life. Yeah, my name is Carmen Osbar, 
and I'm a Muppeteer on Sesame Street, and I perform Rosita and Ovejita for the word on the street, and, you know, chickens and penguins and uh, monsters. <laughs> so there, there I am to help with that. Carmen has been with Rosita since the character was introduced in 1991. Carmen even worked with the show to create Rosita's personality and appearance. And I wanted live hands for her to be very touchable, you know, like grab things, hug friends and beautiful, huge arms. And, uh, and I also said, you know, I don't want her tiny. I want a big monster. <laughs> and then they asked me, well, what, is, what will be her name? And I thought, well, you know, it has to be with an R. So people can roll the R when they say Rosita, and I can teach them how to roll the R. So Rosita came along, too. <laughs> By the time Carmen joined Sesame Street, she was already a skilled puppeteer. She had worked on the show Plaza Sesamo in Mexico City. Today, it's just called Sesamo. It's the version of Sesame Street for Spanish speakers in Latin America. Carmen says it was actually the first episode of Plaza Sesamo in 1972 that initially sparked her fascination for puppetry. And I wondered, too, wow, how do they do that? It's just I didn't know that they wear those things, are there costumes? I had no idea. So when the opportunity came to me when I was 18 to take a workshop... That was for me the moment, the moment that I realized that there was nothing else I wanted to do than perform puppets. It was so difficult, Joanne. It was, I realized that it was not just, you know, you were not wearing a puppet. You know, it was a little guy with just one expression right into your hand, above your head, <laughs> and that you have to do everything else. So it was so challenging. But Carmen got the hang of it and eventually landed a job with Plaza Sesamo. And after a few years working in Mexico, she was invited to check out the set of Sesame Street in New York City. That's when a conversation with Jim Henson changed her life. And I walk in and I saw, you know, the puppeteers there with Bert and Ernie. And I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was just so magical, and it was magical to see them working together. There was so much fun, and they make these characters. And then Jim Henson invited me to be part of a workshop. I thought, oh, you know what, maybe. Maybe they need a bilingual character. I don't know. So, yes, I was part of that workshop for two weeks, and it was so much fun, and I was just about to go to Mexico, and we were in the studio, and he called me. You know, he was in the other side of the room, and he called me, and I just walked to him. And he said, hey, Carmen, after the workshop, you know, I just uh, wanted to ask you if you want to be part of my Muppet family. Oh. And he really gave me a family because... I left my country and I left my home and everybody and, and I came here all by myself and he gave me the, you know, all the Muppeteers and, and, and everybody's been wonderful and now I've just been here for 30 years. <laughs> so you described wonderfully the kind of characteristics you wanted and you wanted her to, to be able to hug. Um, what were some of the aspects that you thought she was bringing to the show that maybe weren't there before her character was there? 
Well, first of all, she was going through the struggles that I was going, and that was <laughs> being new in a new country, and she was new in a new street. Right. So it was very natural for, for her to be <laughs> doing what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, I remember right at the beginning, Rosita was struggling with her words and her accent, and she was the only one that it was feeling bad about what was happening. But everybody else was saying, absolutely no. I mean, you don't have to feel bad. You speak two languages. None of us speak two languages. But, you know, all the contrary. It's great that you're able to speak two languages. So um, I think it's great that there's one more character in a rainbow of characters on Sesame Street because I think Sesame Street has always been so important. You see the cast in 1969, you know. You have Roscoe there, you have Gordon, you have Maria and Louise. And in those days, you didn't have people of color on, on a TV show. And the kids finally were able to identify it. You know, it's like, oh, there's somebody that looks like me on TV. <laughs> With Rosita, I think they continue what they started in 1969, just adding another color in the rainbow, you know. And what was the response when her character first appeared and added that color to the rainbow? How did people respond to her character? Oh, it was great. Oh, gosh, I had a lot of letters. <laughs> Everybody was really happy that there was a monster, a bilingual monster. It still is overwhelming. I'm honored to represent my people. <laughs> the other day we were performing at the Lincoln Center with Wynton Marsalis with all the celebrations of the 50th anniversary. And it was an amazing experience to sing live. And, and at the end, we went through the audience and there were little kids that were trying to talk to Rosita in Spanish, the little words, the, the little words that they knew. <laughs> they all say hello. They say hola, you know, and they tell her her name in Spanish. And it's just adorable. Oh. <laughs> Now, has there been, have you noticed in the time that you've been, Rosita, has there been a change in the way that people respond to her character at all? Well, now they know her better, you know. Uh, there's so many characters on Sesame Street, um, but they definitely know and identify her as uh, she plays the guitar and she speaks Spanish, uh, and that I, it's really good. Also, Rosita's been part of um, a lot of the outreach projects that Sesame Workshop has, and, you know, Rosita's been part of videos for the military families for, like, the last 10 years. So the audience, too, is not just, like, the people that they see me through the show, but they see Rosita now in videos that they're specific, you know, for, like, uh, dealing with changes for the military or, or losing somebody or, or incarceration and all this wonderful work that the Sesame Workshop has for communities. Uh, and actually, I have to say, in the outreach, Rosita's dad is in a wheelchair. And I was able to go to Walter Reef uh, visiting some families there. But I was able to go to the preschool that they have there. And it was really a special moment because Rosita came in and, you know, I did some songs with them and Rosita sang. And But then um, when a, a little girl came really quietly and gave her a hug, and she told her, I know that you are dealing with a lot at home because your daddy is in a wheelchair. My daddy's in a wheelchair too, but everything is going to be okay. You'll see. And I really, I, uh, uh, that, you know, that completely 
they the kids are amazing, you know, with the characters because they know them and they share things and and they're their friends. So, but they're it, it was just so special to have that moment with that little girl. The most rewarding <laughs> thing in the world, right? That 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 kid just said to you, "I learned what I was supposed to learn, and now I'm going to give it to someone else." Yes, yes. Now you talked about you know originally being really taken with just puppets and puppeteering generally. But thinking back to when you were a kid, what do you think it would have meant if there had been some kind of a Rosita puppet character that you could have gotten to know as a kid? Oh, <laughs> well, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And But, you know, I'm a mom, and I have to tell you that uh, these videos help me as as mom with my kid Actually, in my family, we were going through changes <laughs> when I was doing the video of changes. And I didn't know how to talk to my kid about it. I mean, um, we're not in the military or anything, but any regular family goes through a lot of health issues and stuff. And I was going uh, through changes at home. And thank God I had the help of Sesame Street <laughs> because I was able to talk to my kid in a way that uh, we both were understanding what was happening. So uh, thank God for that, really, seriously. Well, so kind of related to that question then, how do you feel that it's important for kids, whether it's your kids or someone else's kids, why do you feel it's important for kids to be able to see themselves in Muppet form, whether or not it's a, a hugging monster <laughs> or some other kind of creature? I think it's very important, and I hope they really get the message that we're trying to send them, you know. Sometimes I think about Oscar the Grouch, right? Oscar the Grouch is just a, a wonderful character that he is who he is. You know, he is, is a grouch. He likes trash and he's fine about it. It's like, this is who I am and this is what you get when you see me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, that is very important for the kids to know that no matter how you look, no matter what is your color, no matter where you come from, you are who you are and you're special. And also that kids should be allowed to have fun and to be goofy and to make mistakes and learn from them and, and just talk to your friends and have a community. As we just heard, Rosita, the bilingual Muppet, has given voice to an often underrepresented demographic in America. In fact, the turquoise monster is a perfect example of one of the enduring themes of Sesame Street, diversity. The show itself was established to appeal to a diverse audience and address deep-seated issues like poverty and racial injustice. Being a historian of Sesame Street is really being an historian of all kinds of different things. Um, it's being an historian of social justice. It's being a historian of race in America. It's being a historian of media and popular culture. Sesame Street provides this wonderful lens through which we can examine all sorts of different trends that are happening in American history. 
That's Catherine Ostrovsky. When Sesame Street first aired in 1969, she says it was an immediate hit. But while the show was experiencing early success, the country was grappling with civil rights and the Vietnam War. So I asked Catherine why Sesame Street chose to promote diversity during this turbulent time in American history. Well, you're right. There's a lot of things going on in 1969. And they were actually planning the show for a couple of years prior to that. So through 1967 and 68, they are talking about what can we do to fix some of the problems in society? What can we do to address some of these major issues that we have as a country? And they were particularly interested in addressing poverty and racial intolerance. In 1967, you have all those urban uprisings. In 1968, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King. These are things that are on everybody's mind. So when they start the show, they plan the curriculum around cognitive goals, around things that you would think of as basically like academic. And those, however, are just tools. They're means to an end. Um, they're thinking about how are we going to help kids feel comfortable in school and feel comfortable learning, and particularly how we're going to help inner-city African-American kids. And Sesame Street consciously had a racially integrated cast. The first four cast members, the hosts of the show, were Gordon and Susan, an African-American couple, and Bob and Mr. Hooper, two white guys who lived in the neighborhood, too. And how did conceptions of diversity change over time? How were they reflected in the show? Well, once you get to the 1970s, there are a lot of different groups who are looking at what happened with the African-American civil rights movement and saying, we should learn some lessons from that and work towards social justice for our communities, too. Right. So you've got uh, the women's movement, you've got Latino civil rights and pride movements, you've got the American Indian movement, and uh, you've got disability rights activists beginning to work toward laws helping their community. And how, how did that show up on the screen? Sesame Street was a show on public broadcasting. And always conceived of itself as a show for the public. Because of that, the public understood this as their show. The public understood that this was a show that they could be a part of. So audience members, people who were activists in other areas of society, started looking at Sesame Street and saying, well, why can't somebody like us be mm -hmm. on that show too? And Sesame Street listened to them. So they looked to people on their staff, people in the cast, and audience members who are writing in to their suggestions about how to make the show more reflective of what American society really was and what American society should be. You're working on a podcast with co-host Sherman Dorn about Sesame Street, and I understand that we have a clip queued up here. I'd like you to set it up for us. What are we going to hear? 
Our podcast is called Everything Happens Here, Half a Century of Sesame Street. And we are exploring all the things that people have learned from Sesame Street over the years beyond the alphabet and numbers. We're going to talk to scholars who have studied Sesame Street as well as the people who actually were involved in working on Sesame Street and creating it. And tell me a little bit about Emily Pearl Kingsley. Emily Pearl Kingsley was a writer on Sesame Street for 45 years. So she started in season two uh, in 1970, and disability issues became very important to her personally outside of the show. And she realized that working on a show like Sesame Street was an opportunity for her to bring these issues to a broad audience. So we're going to hear her talk about how she wrote for a deaf character, played by deaf actress Linda Bove, and how she wrote for her own son, Jason, who had Down syndrome and was featured on the show as well. In season two, I was assigned to go out and check out a thing called the Little Theater of the Deaf. I had to go all the way out on Long Island to where they were performing. And I was absolutely enchanted with them. They're imaginative and creative and, and gave the audience a simultaneous experience that hearing people and non-hearing people would both be experiencing the same kind of thing. Because the signing and the not signing was going on at the same time. It was fascinating. And so I came back from checking these people out. I said, they're wonderful and they, we really need to have them on the show. And I started writing segments for them. And they had fabulous response, fabulous. In the process of writing the stuff for the Little Theater of the Deaf, I decided I should learn to sign. So I started socializing with these people and we would get together on Wednesday nights and we would, you know, communicate. We would, we would play games. We would just chat and so on. And um, it was a very, very uh, opening up experience for me because in addition to learning to sign and having the, all these new friends, I was getting a little politicized about disability issues. And it was it was interesting to be able to see things from their point of view, which I had never been exposed to before. And uh, then Linda Bove came, and Linda was, you know, a character who became a regular. She lived on the street. She was deaf, and not only were we learning some sign language with Linda, but we did segments with Linda on how do you wake up in the morning? What kind of an alarm clock do you use if you can't hear? You know, how do you know when somebody's ringing your doorbell? And so we were answering kids' real questions uh, right there on the show. And I don't think there was any show up to that time that had, you know, dealt with that kind of subject matter right straight head on, asking questions and answering them. Plus, showing that Linda was a full-fledged, ordinary member of the community. She just lived there. She was the librarian. She had a dog. She was just a person who happened to live there. And then every once in a while, you would deal with a deaf issue. When Emily started writing for the show in 1970, she said she wasn't thinking about disability as a part of diversity. Would that have been normal in 1970? It would have been entirely normal. 
for adults in 1970 who, in most cases, would not have grown up around peers and classmates and gone to school with individuals who were labeled as having disabilities. It would have been a mostly new experience to see individuals with disabilities on television. So Linda's an example of an adult character who appeared on the show and represented people with disabilities. What about children with disabilities on the show? Well, the first child with a disability to be featured on Sesame Street was Jason Kingsley, Emily's son. In 1974, I had my son Jason, who was born with Down syndrome. And that was a very shocking experience, to say the least. Personally, we were given very, very horrible advice from from the obstetrician. But this was the um, the advice of the day. You were told when the baby like this was born that you did not have to bring the baby home if you didn't want to. The baby could be placed in a nice, clean institution, and you could go home and tell your family that the baby had died in childbirth because the the uh, expectation was that this child would never accomplish anything. But when he was about three, he was starting to read. And he was putting letters together, letters, scrabble tiles, he was putting together and making little words. It was blowing our minds. He was doing all this stuff that the doctors had said was impossible by definition, you know. I realized I had this this venue, this format, not really at my disposal, but it was a possibility. And I went to the producers and I said, look, I've got this three-year-old kid with Down syndrome who's starting to read. Can we put him on the show? Can we show people that kids with this kind of a disability can learn more than anybody thought? And they said, sure, let's try it. It wasn't until 1975 that there was a federal law requiring that public schools accept all children, regardless of the nature or degree of disability, that public schools around the country were required to consider and start planning for the education of children with learning disabilities, with Down syndrome and other developmental disabilities, In many cases where children with disabilities were educated in public schools, they were segregated in separate classrooms, in separate schools. Starting in the late 1970s, schools and parents and classmates faced an entirely new world. And so the representation of individuals with disabilities on a television show was probably the first exposure on media to the concept of disability for young children. We put Jason on the show, and we did a whole bunch of short little segments with him that are so fabulous. And he was doing letter identification, and you know, and he was making little words together, and he was so cute. So we put them on the show, and the the response was absolutely phenomenal. The the mail that we got just blew us away. It was amazing. People would say, I have a kid like that, and I didn't know that these kids were capable of learning anything. I'm going to work harder with my kid. And people have said, I've never even seen a child with this kind of condition on on any show ever. 
It's so wonderful just to see him there, just having a regular life. And so that's what uh, inspired me to start thinking about, well, if we could do Down syndrome, why can't we do other things? Why can't we do wheelchair stuff? Why can't we do cerebral palsy? Why can't we do spina bifida? Why can't we do um, helmets and, and braces and crutches and all kinds of stuff? And that's what sort of set me off in my my career of, of advocacy on the show. If children with disabilities are really only being included in classrooms in the late 1970s, it's really early for Sesame Street to be including those children in their sort of televised classroom of the air nationwide in the early 70s. My question for someone who wrote for the show for 45 years and shaped it in so many different ways. What in the end was her view of what the show was about? I did a show once called The Furry Little Red Monster Parade. And the idea of that show is sort of like a condensation of what Sesame Street's all about. Elmo wants to make a parade and he's banging his drum and he's saying, come, you know, come one, come all, you know, hooray, hooray. It's the furry little red monster parade. And then Zoe says, oh, can I march with you? And she, sure, here's the song. And she says, wait a minute, I'm not red. I'm orange. So Elmo says, well, we'll change the song. We'll make it hooray for the furry little red and orange monster parade. And then... Somebody else comes along and wants to join in the parade who's not a monster, you know, or who's not little, you know. And each time the, the song changes to accommodate the different people. And then at the end, it turns out that, you know, it's just become unwieldy. It's just ridiculous to be singing this stupid song that's getting longer and longer. So they finally at the end change it to hooray for the, anybody who likes to be in a parade parade. So um, the idea being that the message that it's okay to be whoever you are. It's got to be okay to be whoever you are. Catherine Ostrowski is a Sesame Street scholar and independent historian. Her forthcoming podcast is called Everything Happens Here, Half a Century of Sesame Street. To listen, you'll find a link on our website at www.backstoryradio.org. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. And special thanks this week to Catherine Ostrowski. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the National Endowment for Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Barlow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. 
Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply.